If you're hearing this, it means that you're subscribed to the public podcast feed and only hearing the first half of the conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Howl in the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. Howl in the Wilderness features deep and insightful conversations with renegade artists, philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers who are working on the edge of dominant culture to recover and revive soul in people and the planet. On this episode, I speak with author and psychologist Rachel Harris about her new book, Swimming in the Sacred, which features the stories of 12 female elders of the underground psychedelic therapy movement. If you'd like to support the podcast, consider joining the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Thanks for listening. Well, Rachel, it's uh, really nice to have you back on the podcast. It's been, I think, a couple of years since I talked to you about your last book. Yes, the uh, ayahuasca book. The ayahuasca book, yeah, yeah. which uh, I think sent your life on a new trajectory. Yes, yes. I'd, I'd been working on that trajectory for a while, but that book was really part of it. Um. But that book did open uh, connections to the underground uh, elders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is the subject of your latest book, Swimming in the Sacred. Um, I was curious. I mean, people can go back and listen to that earlier episode, I think, where we talk a lot about your background and that journey that led you to write the first book. Uh, but just quickly, for people who don't know you and your work, could you give a little bit of your professional background? 
Yes. Um, the non-professional background <laughs> is that I went right from undergraduate from, from college to Esalen Institute into their residential program in 1968. I was 21 years old. So that was a, a six-month program where we worked with, there were 11 of us, we worked 50, 60 hours a week on ourselves. I mean, it sounds a little indulgent now, but it was a great experience of working with all the workshop and therapy leaders of the time in 1968. And, and then, of course, I remained at Esalen for a couple of years. And during that time, I had a chance to work with different psychedelics because there were plenty, let's just be honest, there were plenty of drugs around Big Sur in the late 60s, and they were good quality. And also, we had sort of a psycho-spiritual approach. And so often we were you know, on a on up on the ridge overlooking the ocean. I mean, we were in beautiful nature, but I had never done the protocol where you're with a guide and you've got music, you know, in your earphones and eye shades and you're turned inward. So I I actually hadn't done that till I started this book. Hmm. Um before our conversation, I did a little Google search. Uh, just out of curiosity to kind of see where things were at, little temperature check. And so I, I punched in psychedelic therapy experts. And the the top article that came up was entitled uh, something like top experts talk about psychedelic therapy. And the, the four people in there were all pretty much the same demographic. They were all, I Let would me say- guess. Let me just take a wild guess. <laughs> well, white men. <laughs> yeah, and and particularly yeah. uh, well-educated, upper-middle-class or wealthy, uh, you know, men of European descent uh, of a certain age, middle age and above. Um, I mean, what's your take on this? What's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's a thanks for the setup. <laughs> what I say is these these women, you know, my criteria for interviewing them is that they've been working underground for at least 20 years. And many of them have been working underground for 30 to 40 years. And that means they're above 60 years old. The eldest of the elders is now about 90. Um, and they continue to work underground. So they're silenced twice. They're silenced because of their gender, and and then they're silenced because they're working illegally. Mm. Now, you know, one of the first things you learn as a research, because I have both a clinical and a research background, one of the first things you, you learn as a researcher when you're developing a questionnaire is to interview people who are experts in that area that you're wanting to study. And so when I did the ayahuasca research, which was published in 2012, so see that predates the book. The book was published in 2017, but I have an article in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs from 2012. So I developed the questionnaire in like 2008, 2009, and I went to someone who was an elder, was a woman. And she of course appears in, in the Swimming in the Sacred book you know, over a decade later, but I asked her at that time, like a good researcher, <laughs> um, what what questions should I ask? I was interviewing people who had at least one uh, ceremony with ayahuasca in North America. And she was very clear, one question, 
Ask them if they have an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca. And so I did. And I had 81 people in the study, three quarters of them reported that they had an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca. And I thought, this is what the um, academic teams have never asked because mm -hmm. they did not interview one of the women and the women have, and another reason for just interviewing women is they have very subtle, um, intimate relationship with the plant teachers, with the plant spirits. They tend to have their own preferred medicine, but they have relationships with what I call unseen others, could be ancestral spirits, spirit guides, and the plant teachers. And um, I felt that they had a more intuitive, <clears throat> um, intimate relationship. Because <clears throat> I had talked to some of the men who were working underground, and I felt that the women were qualitatively different. So I can give an example of how the Hopkins team missed the boat on an internet study that they did, because yeah. they they well, didn't interview the elder women. Yeah, well, one of the questions I was going to ask you is like, wh what do we miss when we continually look to the same uh, male, you know, upper middle class, well-educated demographic for advice and guidance on, I mean, on anything, but in particular on working with plant medicines and psychedelics? Well, Hopkins came out with a couple of articles that, that um, were the result of an internet survey study, and it was about uh, uh, entity encounters. And so they asked people who had used, you know, a whole array of drugs and they divided them by their drug of choice, whether it was acid or DMT or ayahuasca, what psilocybin, what they had used. And the question was, did you encounter an entity? And, you know, many of them did, but they didn't because they had not interviewed any of the women elders working underground who frankly know more about the medicines and the medicine experience than any of the scholars, any of the researchers, they did not ask, do you have an ongoing relationship with this entity? So mm -hmm. they missed this sense of uh, an ongoing healing relationship that I have, I have um, written about in the ayahuasca book that this, an ongoing relationship like this can help heal some of the attachment traumas that people suffer with. So they missed a whole therapeutic approach to what these medicines can do. And the ongoing relationship goes way beyond um, the ceremony or the journey. So people feel in communion with a plant teacher during meditation, during dreams, during moments when they turn to the, to the unseen other for support and guidance. It's not related necessarily to a drug being inside of them. But um, here they did, you know, an interesting survey on entities, but they didn't ask the key question. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the first question that comes to my mind if I hear, yes, I encountered an entity in this experience is, okay, um, are you still in contact with that uh, entity or spirit? What's the nature of that relationship? Like, what's it like for you in an ongoing basis? Yes. So what are, what are some of the things that, that you learned? You, you um, have experience. <laughs> well, 
Well, yeah, and maybe a different perspective because I'm a kind of uh, renegade psychologist. You know, I work outside the system. My education was outside yeah. the system. Right, right. So, so in, in the study, yeah. I asked them, how do you communicate? How are you connected? And they answered in meditation, in dreams. Um, I can just hear the voice at any time during the day. I can sort of dial up the connection. So hmm. it's very much... Um, it, it, I mean, that crosses different states of consciousness, but that the fact that the person can call on this unseen entity, this is when I, I was 35, 40 years in private practice. And so, you know, I had a, a phone with a message on it, you, you know, leave, you know, I'll get back to you soon. Something, it was just the standard therapy message, call 911 if you're in an emergency. And people would say, I didn't really need to talk to you. I just needed to hear your voice. So I would call up and listen to your message, hmm. which was you know, 20 seconds. I mean, but that's an, that's the need for an attachment. That's, you know, when you see little toddlers on the playground and they toddle back to their mother, they're going back to a home base. They just need to sort of refuel. And so that's what my clients would sometimes just call me and they wouldn't even leave a message. They just needed to hear my voice. And so that's how these... Um, people who'd had an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca, this is how they talked about it. I could call on her anytime. That's, you know, that's a wonderful attachment relationship. Yeah. I, I mean, the kind of attachment relationship that people could have with, um, with, with Jesus or uh, the Buddha or, or another kind of a deity um, yes. that, that being fulfilled uh, by you know, what people perceive as a, a plant spirit. Yes, exactly. And it's not that these people thought of ayahuasca as a god. It's mm -hmm. um, a, a source of wisdom and support. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, ayahuasca was not always um, just supportive. I mean, she was sometimes challenging. But people had um, a confidence that even when she was challenging, it was in their own best interests. You know, something just occurred to me, um, I don't think that I've thought about before, but as you're talking, uh, you're talking about people having a relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca. I've never heard anyone say, um, you know, every morning I do a meditation and I check in with MDMA or I check in with LSD. <laughs> What's going on there? Well, you know, I sort of have that same prejudice because, you know, I think, oh, well, a plant spirit, that makes sense. But some, uh, you know, one of the, uh, you know, I know someone who's working on a book um, on uh, ketamine, the most chemical, and and she's uh, thinking of calling it listening to ketamine. So picking she has, up on your book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. But but she feels she has a relationship with ketamine. And people talk about a relationship with MDMA, and then they say, well, it comes, it's a source, the chemicals come from the willow tree. So ultimately it goes back to a plant. And certainly LSD goes back to a plant too. But it it seems a little far-fetched to me, but people report this. Okay. So you've seen that people still have that kind of personal relationship, even if it's a, um, a kind of distilled chemical compound. Chemical. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Even though it, that doesn't ring for me, I don't resonate with that. People report it and, and I trust their lived experience. 
Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, you kind of uh, already alluded to the premise of the new book. You you wanted to speak with uh, women who were working as um, psychedelic providers, facilitators, uh, therapists in the underground. Uh, what were some of the parameters that you had for the women that you interviewed? Like, uh, what kind of qualifications were you looking for? None other than the, the criteria of a 20-year experience. I had okay. no other qualifications. Well, that's an important one, um, I would that think. That was the key one. Yeah. yeah. So so why that and 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 no other qualifications? Well, I wanted I wanted the experience. Mm -hmm. and, and and what I found is that they'd really been working decades longer, that these were really these were really the elders, not just the experienced people. They were really the elders who had some of them had trained with, you know, the book The Secret Chief about Leo Zeff. This mm -hmm. is really worth reading. One of them had trained with him in the early 60s. So they sort of uh, occupied a historical place in the story of psychedelics because they were trained by, I mean, they were trained in all different situations. What they had in common though, is that they worked on themselves for many years. So they didn't just dive in and say, I'm ready to be a psychedelic therapist. And in fact, they're not therapists at all. They're really more like priestesses. They, they sit in the ceremony and they maintain the sacred space. So they're more like priestesses. And I had to pretty early on give up the concept of, oh, they're therapists because they don't think like therapists at all. They really, they, they don't look for resolving issues or, or things like that. Um, they look for um, transformation. Hmm. You know, what are you doing in your life? Are you kind of living up to your calling? Um, it's, it's a big, big spiritual questions they're looking at. And if someone is just coming back for ceremony after ceremony, and they're not really changing their life and finding ways to make a contribution, then they will, they will stop doing ceremonies with them. So they're very serious about saying, I, I want to see a real change. Mm -hmm. But if someone okay. after a ceremony says, well, you know, a lot of stuff came up about my father. I'd like to talk to you about it. I've always had a problem with him. This group of women would most likely refer that person to a therapist who knows the territory. So they, they work in conjunction with professionals um, and they, they, they would not want to see that person in an ongoing way, which is what any therapist does, but that's not what they do. Hmm. Yeah, you, you uh, tell an anecdote in the book, um, you're in the kitchen talking to one or two friends and one of them is uh, one of these um, uh, ceremonialists, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, titles are difficult, but she yeah. uh, she quite strongly you were you were talking as a therapist, uh, and she quite strongly said something like, "We don't talk about our childhood here," or something like that. Right? Yeah, that's not what that's not. We're not interested in your childhood. And my experience of that was that she was up in my face and screaming at me. That and, and that did not happen because I had I had a friend there, and after the woman who was trained as a shaman after she left, I said to my friend, did she yell at me? 
She said, no, she never yelled at you. And I was, that was my clear memory. She'd gotten nose to nose and yelled in my face, basically saying, let go of that therapy speak. And what she had done, what I figured out she had done, because she hadn't really yelled at me at all, but she did an energy intervention. So it was a shamanic intervention and I felt the shock of it and it worked. I really let go of thinking they were therapists. I thought, oh, transformation. Well, that's really different. And in the process of transformation, psychological childhood issues really do often disappear, fall away. It's a totally different process. Mm. Yeah, I, I found that as well, that uh, there, there's something, I mean, if it's not your focus is to find the causal relationship between what happened then and the problems you're experiencing now, if you're looking more toward um, expansion and transformation, then the events of the past um, become less significant I found. And uh, so I think, you know, kind of modern psychotherapy is really caught up in childhood trauma and that um, cause and effect kind of relationship. And I, I think that can be limiting in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, in, in what well, I found, you, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. What you found. No, no, go. Finish your thought. Well, just speaking with um, indigenous healers, they didn't seem to be interested in that at no, all and, and found that it actually um, people could get uh, kind of caught up in that that story. Um, and so they would often uh, discourage people from dwelling too much on what happened in the past. And and the indigenous healers, you know, we know from ayahuasca, they're, they're really interested in clearing and cleaning. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really different process. And I, I have a friend who uh, happens to be a Jungian analyst. So, you know, he's had a lifetime of therapy besides his analytical training. And he said, you know, he's worked on his trauma with his father. But in, his, in an ayahuasca ceremony, it, it disappeared. It didn't just resolve. It disappeared. That's, that's a qualitative difference. Now, you know, having spent my life either sitting in therapy as a therapist or as a client, you know, I'm not ready to throw it out. And I think, you know, lots of times we really do need to work on the family history. And if we skip it, you know, we're at risk for acting it out in some way or falling or, falling or rising into inflation. I mean, we're really at risk for a couple of problems. But I think it's also limiting. I mean, it, it doesn't do everything. And the transformation psychedelic process really can shift the whole story mm -hmm. in, in a way that we don't really understand. It's certainly not cause and effect. It's yeah. just shifts in a whole different way. I, I like what Jung said, that uh, it's not so much that we solve our problems, is that we outgrow them. Um, by kind of adding to our capacity and our, our breadth of experience. Yes. That's what psychedelics have done for me, largely. Yes, it's sort of like the psychic space gets bigger mm -hmm. so that the, 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 the childhood history occupies a smaller space of it. Yeah, yeah, that's my feeling as well. Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned that... Uh, that uh, the women you spoke to would often refer people to therapists. 
but did they have any approach to like integration or kind of uh, post-ceremony care? Well, that is it's interesting. They they would certainly meet with people and they might do a follow-up phone call, but that's about it. Hmm. They did not, they really didn't, they would mostly like debrief or talk to them. It's They really were not doing a therapeutic intervention in that way. You know, the, the research protocols, you get maybe three integration sessions, follow-up sessions, which is not very much. I mean, from a therapy point of view, that's not very much. Um, and the women are even briefer. But I, I still have an attachment to the process of psychotherapy. And, uh, you know, I think things come up in ceremony that are so rich and ripe and uh, sort of, you, you know, they're calling for, for um, the, the therapeutic process that I'm, I'm not ready to throw it out. And, and I, don't, I don't buy, you know, an ayahuasca ceremony is worth 10 years of psychotherapy. I don't buy that. And there was one young guy, well, I now call him young, but he was in his early 40s. And he said he used to believe that. And then he finally realized all his relationships were crashing and burning. So he finally decided I better go to therapy. And he said, well, this is, you know, this is doing things that the ceremonies didn't. So I think I think both sides are true and that they are really maybe parallel processes in some way, but quite different processes and that we need both. And I, I was with um, I, I, I was with Tony Bosis in New York a couple of, just a week or so ago, we went out to dinner and we had an encounter with a guy who's working with uh, psychedelics, doing a lot of work professionally, highly trained and personally. And after we left him, we, we both said to each other, you know, you can be a jerk before psychedelics and you can be a jerk after psychedelics and, you know, let's get real. I mean, in, in the late 60s, we thought that the psychedelic, the mystical experiences were going to change the world. Well, you know, my generation hasn't done all that well changing the world. Mm. Let's mm -hmm. face it, the, the 60s generation, we've made kind of a mess of things. And so the psychedelics, you know, they don't fix, they don't transform everything. It's just not that easy. Yeah, uh, I appreciate you saying that. And um, I, yeah, I think they, they can definitely be complementary uh, processes. Like psychotherapy for me, when, when it's done in a particular way, I think it serves a need that's missing in our contemporary culture. Like the ability to have deep and meaningful conversations where uh, there's no fear of judgment. I think that allows the person to become more themselves. Uh, and unfortunately, oftentimes it's got to be in a professional relationship to get that. But I like to believe I kind of have a fantasy that uh, you know, before it was professionalized, we we did that for each other. You know. Yes, and I think that still happens. But it has to be real simpatico friendships. Yeah, yeah. Well. Um, my friend and mentor Tom Moore has uh, written a book called Soul Therapy that uh, advocates for just that, um, how just regular people, friends, family can have therapeutic uh, conversations with each other. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
when, okay, so you talk to women who are mostly older, who had, uh, you know, at least 20 years experience. Was there anything um, surprising that you learned in these conversations with them? A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I think I, it wasn't surprising, but I was very, I was very impressed by how dedicated they are to their own inner work and processing. And as I mentioned, they did a lot of their work using psychedelics. They worked on themselves a lot. They had therapy, they did both. Um, and, but they continue. So they're um, continuing to work on themselves. Uh, one woman had this phrase that I thought was really interesting. If something happened in her life, she would say, you know, that's, that's working on me. So it was like something would happen or she would reset and it would rest inside of her in a way that kept evolving. So their commitment to their ongoing uh, psychological development is very real. And when I said to one of them, you know, the licensed therapists have not necessarily ever been in therapy. She just could not believe it. She didn't know that was possible. I said, no, you know, they can't enforce that as part of a graduate program. You can get licensed without ever having sat in a therapy session for yourself. And she just was horrified. <laughs> so their commitment to their work on themselves continues. And uh, and then the other thing that was that had such a big impact on me is they're so, I found them to be like spiritual warriors. They had done every medicine at every dosage level. And I remember talking to one of the women and saying something like, well, you know, they don't always have to be cowboy dosages. You know, you can have a lower dose and still have a mystical experience. And, and she says, yes, I like the lower doses. You can bring back more information. But sometimes I just like to fly. And I thought, well... <laughs> You know, I would never say that. This is uh, this is someone who's just has no fear, and you know, will will go anywhere. And um, that's you know, that's a unique aspect of these women. Mm. Yeah, like the therapist who uh, has never done therapy is would be kind of like a shaman who's never undergone an apprenticeship, right? Something yeah. like that. Well, and you know, how many of the, I mean, let's ask ourselves, how many of the so-called new psychedelic therapists have done, have much experience with entheogens? Have they even had their own therapy? Some yes, some no. Have they apprenticed with anybody? Do they have an elder monitoring them in any way? Um you know, if they choose to work underground, which is a big risk, you know, because you're really risking your license, do they, are they really um, 
do they have colleagues? Do they have a medical person to talk to about an, an, a, an, an intense medical interview? Are they really doing a medical history? Do they, if they have a question about something that comes up, do they have any peer supervision? Do they have colleagues to bounce things off of? How much are they continuing to learn and learn from more experienced people? I, I was very impressed with how the underground women do not work alone. I mean, they are connected to uh, a network of other people who they can call and talk to. I mean, when I was in private practice, I knew exactly what psychologist friend to call when I had a question. He was a very good clinical um, insight person. Mm, like and, a supervisor. Uh, he was more of a, a, a colleague, more of a peer mm. consult, because he would ask me questions too. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and and these women have that in their lives. They can turn to colleagues. Yeah. Yeah, there's a danger of uh, getting too kind of isolated in your yeah. ideas and your practice, right? And I find it's really helpful to have, like you said, just those peer colleagues that you can bounce things off of, you know, like, I'm having difficulty with this client. We're having, you know, something's going exactly. on. Can you can you help me see another perspective here? Like, what am I missing? That kind of thing. That's right. Yeah. Or like, right. could you like suggest a different move that I haven't thought of yet? You know, something to help the the therapy right. to progress. It, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Another thing I remember you mentioning in the book is that um, the I don't know if it was all the women or a good portion of them were doing uh, quite intensive intakes with yeah. the people that they worked with, which I was, I mean, I'm all in favor of, but I was surprised because my experience um, on both sides, you know, being a participant and also counseling a lot of people who have done underground uh, ceremonies or therapy, uh, I think that's that's quite rare, it seems to me. You know, I tell people don't go to someone who does not take a, a complete medical history. And mm -hmm. and these ones, they were very interesting. They said, you know, if you ask once, uh, are you on any medications? People will lie because they want to do a journey. So they won't yes. tell. So you have to ask a couple of different ways. You know, have you ever, what medicines have you ever used? What diagnoses have you ever been given? I mean, they're 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 very comprehensive, mm. and they've, so, wor they've worked with medical doc with medical doctors, and they consult with them. Right, so they know those kind of. I think they're called the SOAP uh, questions. It's like an intake form standard, um, so they have an idea of what to ask for, what to look for. Nobody mentioned that <laughs> they've developed questionnaires on their own. Yeah. Um, do you find, uh, did you find in your interviews that it was mostly uh, like a medical history rather than uh, psychological or, um, well, it was medical or biographical? Psychiatric. It was medical psychiatric. Okay. You know, I, I spoke to one old friend of mine and he um, he's not in the psychedelic community, he comes from the meditation community. And he said he knew some of the psychiatrists in LA who were practicing in the 50s and 60s. And he said, you know, I had an opportunity back then to do an LSD trip, but the psychiatrist asked me questions about my family. And this guy happened to have an uncle who had, who was schizophrenic. 
And the psychiatrist said, well, I wouldn't take you on as a client because you have a closely connected relative with a psychiatric history. I've not heard that from anyone in, in these days. So back then, it's interesting that that was the criteria. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the 50s, um, schizophrenia was kind of all the rage. Uh, it, it was like it was like such a focus in the psychiatric <laughs> world back then that uh, you know, <laughs> well, I, I'm not I'm not sure if like that would uh, disqualify someone from um, taking a psychedelic. Is that uh, you know an uncle had schizophrenia? I don't. I know. know. I didn't think it was a close enough relative, but it was interesting that that was part of the history. Yeah, and we didn't have you know it was in the mid 50s that we began to have drugs that could contain schizophrenia out um you know behavior well not contain it maybe uh, suppress it possibly but also oh, absolutely suppress <laughs> <laughs> contain is a nice way of saying suppress yeah. uh yeah. but nice but also <laughs> interestingly induce uh schizophrenia like um manifestations or symptoms right i mean that was kind of how lsd started being used in psychiatry it was like a psychomimetic to, yes, to, yeah 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 but there's that fixation on schizophrenia i mean it was just like the latest thing <laughs> well like... we had we had no treatment for it nothing worked until they developed the the meds that would would suppress the symptoms it's true yeah quiet the voices inside um, there's been more recent studies, though, that show that uh, everybody has voices in their head. Um, it's a matter <laughs> well, of di diagnosis. I mean, the book was based on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. But there is a movement. There is a movement coming out of England. I think called Inner Voices. There's the Voices Network, and hmm. and it's it's a it it, it it was started by people themselves, not professionals. And it was in the direction of just accepting the voices rather than fighting them. And rather than having, you know, hearing voices be a, a, a diagnostic symptom. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's bit, yeah, it's a little bit making friends with the voices. Mm -hmm. I mean, what other choice do we have? Like this was like R.D. Lang's uh, whole innovation. Uh, the thing that made him a kind of a rebel outcast was he was very much about allowing the voices and, and befriending and giving giving them a voice through the person and, and taking them kind of seriously or engaging with them. Right. More than more than the voices, he didn't he didn't use meds at all, and he he was figuring that the psychotic break would work itself out. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, he was drinking a lot. But, you know, yeah. it, this is a complicated well, situation. He's an eccentric person. I mean, it, it takes an eccentric to come up with like Give radical ideas, you know. And, and it takes round the clock care. So it's very, very difficult. It takes a lot of care around a person. Yeah. I mean, he had to, he started up kind of residential um, yes. places where people could live with him and be, be on call 24 hours a day. Um well, uh, I still want to, like, I'm still interested in, like, you noticed a qualitative difference between the the women that you interviewed who are working in the underground versus people working, like, above ground in the mainstream. Do you think that there is something inherent to uh, male-female differences in terms of how we uh, approach 
experiences like this, like experiences of the numinous, um, the psychedelic experience. And like a kind of a part two to that is go go back to, you know, my little research that I did and who are we looking to as experts in the field? Like why, why are we still looking to the same demographics for uh, advice and guidance? Um, is there something in the psychology of the culture that's still fixated on men as authority or, or something like that? Or, or is there something about women um, maybe not feeling the same urge to make a mark on the world by, by being so public and uh, being a spokesperson and a public uh, authority or something like that? Like, I, I'm just wondering about that. Well, you know, when you look for the, the, the top psychedelic therapists, um, you know, the, the, what I would ask, and I, I don't know for sure when this happened, but when did, um, when did the graduate programs have as many women as men? So when did the PhD psychologists include women? I mean, I had no encouragement from the psychology department to apply to graduate school. Hmm. And that's because I was a woman. I had straight A's in all the psychology classes. And um, and then the same thing, it's, it's even later for the psychiatrists because medical schools are still very difficult for women, even though now I think there might even be more women than men, but the faculty is still mostly men. It's just beginning to change. So that's why when you ask for experts and they're established in their field, you're always going to get more men. It's It should be gradually changing in the next decade or two. Hmm. Do you think there's anything to this uh, hypothesis of, you know, that possibly it's something about, you know, a male desire to be, to be known, to make his mark on the world, that kind of thing? Um, and because even in uh, five years of doing this podcast, I found it more difficult to find uh, women to speak to who uh, have written a book, who want to speak yeah. publicly about a certain topic. I, I just get curious about that. Like, is it a thing in men that wants, you know, they want to go into the world, that kind of heroic consciousness? Well, you know, they don't spend 20 years, you know, doing laundry and changing diapers. Mm -hmm. So women's careers are interrupted. I mean, I left... Uh, I left a big research career when I had my daughter. NIH called me and said, where's your next proposal? And I said, um, you know, I'm going to stay home with a baby. And they practically hung up on me. Hmm. She was born in 82. Because mm -hmm. they had already invested $100,000 in me. NIH had given me $100,000 to do a study, which I did and I completed and then I gave birth and that was the end of that career. So men don't have that kind of career interruption. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then it's it's very difficult to go back and pick up a career 10 years later when the kids are then adolescents. You know, who knows what they're doing? I mean, these are the bigger differences. The women are not supported and they're still interrupting their careers. Mm -hmm. um, the women that you spoke to, though, are they are they underground by choice or because they didn't have the same opportunities? 
I mean, was there a desire in them to be? No, uh, these were not academic. No, these were not academic. Their their jobs were in different in different arenas. They, you know, their work with the entheogens was underground, and that's how they continued. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it was outside the academic professional world. Yeah. I think, you know, just personally, I think it's really important that there is always an underground current happening um, because I think it's the underground that often keeps really important things alive in the culture that uh, if brought into the mainstream get, um, I, I don't know, um, suppressed or altered in such a way to to conform and to be acceptable. One, one, one of the women said, even if these medicines become legal, I would continue to work underground because that's where the sacred container is. So that's, I think that's the the attitude that you're looking for there. And, and they and they do feel that way. Mm. Um, and traditionally, these medicines have been used. I mean, the 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 mystery schools that Eleusis, they were people were sworn to secrecy about them. So there is a secret nighttime underground component to them. Um, and I I do think that's true. I. I think, you know, what the 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 psychedelic Renaissance we're we're being challenged really. How does our Western culture want to hold these medicines? In in what ways? And I think there's going to be a whole sort of smorgasbord of ways that people will hold them, and some will be in medically controlled situations, and some will be underground, and then everything in between. And people will have to educate themselves about what sort of opportunity do they want to look for. Yes, and that puts a lot of responsibility on the person seeking help or healing. Yes, it does. It does. Yeah, which in other cultures is... Yeah, which in other cultures is uh, is par for the course of being an adult, um, you know, taking risks, practicing discernment. Um, in our culture, though, there's so much emphasis on safety or the the kind of uh, perception of safety or the intention of safety. Uh, I think that's a real a real problem with uh, you know something like a decriminalization movement that would allow the underground to to keep flowing and prosper. Um, what do you think about that? The whole idea, you know, of safety and ceremony and that kind of thing. You know, if, if you, if you talk to anyone who's been around for 50 years or so in this community with psychedelics, everybody knows someone who was harmed, who had a bad trip and never recovered. So their whole life was changed, but these medicines are very safe and that's a very small percentage but there is a risk. I mean, I took a Tylenol this morning. There's a risk, you know, with a Tylenol. Um, But there, it's not that there's no risk at all. So even though they're safe, people do have bad experiences that, that take even years to recover from or, or not at all. But but the power of what Nixon did and closing everything down, that set up the, the, the perception of these are dangerous drugs and the way they're scheduled, they're scheduled as dangerous drugs. And that's not true. Mm -hmm. 
but the, but well, but it should never be done lightly. You know, I've been hearing of a lot of people doing different journeys alone, even ayahuasca, home alone. Uh-huh. And I'm just sort of horrified. I mean, my experience of ayahuasca is in ceremony with a, an indigenous shaman, someone trained by an indigenous shaman, and that the ceremony is as important as the drug, the medicine itself. But I'm hearing more and more people doing things alone and I, you know, I sort of, I mean, it's against everything I've ever been taught or understood, but I think this is part of what's happening and people will be working in, in many different ways with the medicines. And this is part of what our culture is challenged to begin to understand how do we want to incorporate these medicines into the Western world. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the reasons why... I- I was excited uh, to hear that you're coming up with this book that had this particular focus is that, you know, in this uh, psychedelic renaissance, if that's what we want to call it, you know, that's what it's kind of colloquially known as. I don't, you know, I'm not a big fan of the term actually, but in this kind of resurgence of interest in, in psychedelics, um, one of the things that I've really been trying to advocate for is, um, not to lose all of the collective knowledge that has been accrued over the past, you know, not just the millennia of like indigenous use of psychedelics, but even in the past uh, 50, 60 years of that underground movement, all of those people uh, working diligently and uh, hopefully with integrity, but learning a lot along the way that, uh, doesn't transfer well into a kind of a clinical situation. And and I think a lot of what is actually healing about a a ceremony, let's say with with music and uh, kind of ritual around it, uh, a lot of that is part of the healing. uh, And I think that gets lost. And so what I've been advocating for is like, let's let's learn from what's been happening in the underground and, and incorporate that into the therapies that are uh, happening in the mainstream. I mean, what are your thoughts about that, about um, well, that's that kind exactly of the integration? This, that's yeah. exactly, this book is in some ways a historical document. And it's not it's not at all a how-to. I didn't want to write a how-to. But I wanted to write about how these women came to be who they are. And it's really through their own work and their own apprenticeships. And you you just briefly mentioned your apprenticeship with Thomas More. Well, something like an apprenticeship, but not that close, you know. Not that close. An apprenticeship is at the elbow, sitting at the elbow. Yeah. It's very close. Yeah. But you studied with him. Um, and and that takes time and it takes years. And in our current situation, people don't want to spend that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very different approach. So I, I I think, you know, I, of course, agree with you about learning from those who are more experienced, but I don't really see it happening very much. Yeah, I, I mean, I see it in my imagination and my fantasy. Uh, I even yeah, yeah, well, some, live in your fantasy. <laughs> yeah, I even propose some like scenarios of what that could look like. Like instead of going to a, a downtown clinic for a, a ketamine drip, maybe you just go an hour outside of the city to a more natural place and um, 
and have like a weekend experience with other people and you get some of the other good stuff like the nature connection the people connection the the ritual and and song and all of that um i i think it's doable you know and i think it could be incorporated into a kind of mainstream therapy well, it doesn't heard- seem far-fetched to me one of the women I interviewed was trained by a Shipipo shaman. One or two of them were trained by different shamans. Um, at, after six years of working with him, he said to her, you're ready to sing in ceremony, which is a very big deal because the singing is big, a big part of the treatment. It's the thing, yeah, with the Shipibo. the thing. She said, no, I'm not ready. Six years, no, I'm not mm-hmm. ready. So she sat next to him, as I say, at the elbow, and he would sing, and she would sing the same song like a nanosecond right behind him. Mm-hmm. So it was almost like she was singing along with him. And they could compare what they were seeing in the person's body and energy field and how it was changing because of this, the Icaros. After a year of that, she was ready to start singing. Mm-hmm. So it's... You know, I love your idea, you know, what I call your fantasy of going out into nature and doing a ceremony, but who's going to run that ceremony? How many years have they studied to, yeah. to do that? So we we don't have enough people who have gone through those kind of intensive studies and apprenticeships. Many of the women are are taking on, uh, are, are uh, being mentors to younger people. and And I know a handful of well-established therapists who are working very hard on themselves using the the medicines and studying with different people who are elders. So there is a very small group moving in the same direction that these women did. Slightly different because they're therapists already, but they're spending the time and they're working on themselves intensely. Hmm. And that's that's really my message. You want to do this work? Work on yourself intensely. Do the work. And it was, um, you know, Laura, I have a wonderful quote from Laura Huxley, who says, the most challenging aspect of guiding is to keep themselves out of their client's journey. So how do you do mm-hmm. that? Do your own work. Yeah. So, you know, that's sort of my mantra. And that takes a lot of time. Yeah takes a lot of um, self-knowledge and uh, self-control, self-containment. And real not, commitment. Not interfere, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a big one. Um, uh, I was wondering, like, was there anything that you learned from them about what they think it takes to be a good guide? Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This was an excerpt of a longer conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at Patreon.com forward slash Howl in the Wilderness. Thanks.